I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. So today I have Dara Horn with me. Dara, how are you? Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, I uh, wanted to have you for a lot of reasons, but I want to start with this. In the realm of what I like to call identity politics right now in society, right? Or you might call them hierarchies of oppression. Maybe you call them the oppression Olympics. Why don't Jews matter as much? Because I don't think they don't, and I'm a Jew. Why are we, why are we somehow uh, part of the WASPy power brokers and everybody else is marginalized, or at least everybody else in the hierarchy pyra- hierarchical pyramid? Well, yeah, there's actually a simple answer to that, which is anti-Semitism. <laughs> um, no, I'm being really serious. No, because- no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, I take note for sure, and I want to. That's what I want to uh, unpack. Yes. Well, so a, a fundamental feature of anti-Semitism is the belief that Jews have too much power. So if you're going to set up sort of this, you know, society where, you know, minorities are people who are believed to not have enough power, and you're coming into that with a completely unexamined legacy anti-Semitic belief that Jews automatically already have too much money, too much power, then you're going to go into that with that presumption. And that is sort of like one of those unexamined anti-Semitic beliefs that a lot of people have, you know, really not even being aware that that's part of that, that that's part of what they're thinking. It's almost an unconscious belief that a lot of people are carrying with them into these conversations. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I wanted to bring that up to go into the, you know, recent kerfuffle, although she apologizes, whatever's the Whoopi Goldberg situation. Okay. You know, where she, where she talked about Jews not being a race, you know, willfully ignorant on one hand to what not, what the Nazi uh, mantra was, but also tied into the belief that the idea of racializing something only can be as it relates to skin color. It can't be anything else because the debate is literally, we're in a world now, I should say, right, where we're trying to social justiceize everything, right? But only the things that we think matter. And so she made them, I think Whoopi fell into the mistake, though she apologized, of assuming that somehow power is all about white people. Jews are white people, right? So we couldn't potentially ever be considered marginalized or victimized or even racialized. I thought that was such an interesting moment, you know, Whoopi, who I like very much, who I don't think is anti-Semitic, but she was revealing a kind of uh, casual anti-Semitism, wouldn't you say? I think that her remarks reflect a general ignorance about, about who Jews are about Jewish culture, Jewish history, Jewish civilization. And it's not her fault because think about what, a per- I mean, and this is just really a product of a very typical um, American education. Think about what you learn about Jews in like um, a middle school or high school history book. At what point in that textbook do you ever encounter Jews? Um, and this is true for like, you know, textbooks that are published today and textbooks that were published, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago, whenever or whenever Whoopi Goldberg was in school, um, maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever. Um, it's it's consistently true. Um, there's basically two places that you're going to encounter Jews in that textbook. If it's a textbook that has ancient history in it, there might be a page in the beginning about with, with the ancient civilization section. There might be a page about the Israelites. Right. It doesn't mention that those people are Jews, right? They might as well be. Phoenicians, you know, they're people from a long time ago, they're dead, who cares? Okay. Then the other time you meet Jews in this textbook is if it's a textbook that covers modern period, there's going to be a chapter toward the end about the Holocaust. 
which is and and from this we learn that Jews are people who got murdered and their murders are there to like teach us some grand message about like you know the limits of western civilization there's nothing in between and there's nothing since right and of course what that tells and what's you know and so there's this absolute erasure of the content of Jewish culture and civilization. And I could say like, okay, well, Jews are this small, you know, small minority group. Then like, you know, there's lots of small groups that are, don't make it into the textbook. That would be true, except that Judaism is foundational to the history of the West. You don't have Christianity and Islam without Judaism. Right. Um, also, Judaism is this counterculture that weaves its way through the entire history of the West. That's right. Also, a lot of Western civilization has defined itself in opposition to Judaism. There's a book by a historian, University of Chicago historian, David Nirenberg, called Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition. And he traces this even from before Christianity, from other parts of the ancient world of how many civilizations throughout the history of the West have defined themselves in opposition to Judaism. And also in, in the modern period in, in you know, sort of post-religious context as well. So all of that is kind of left out. And the result is that the Holocaust is taught as like this historical vacuum, as this like moment outside of history that's mm -hmm. unrelated to anything about Jews interacting in a non-Jewish society before or since. So someone like Whoopi Goldberg who makes this kind of comment that this is sort of like this like, random event that's unrelated to the rest of Western history. Right. Like, I, I don't blame her for making that mistake because she's never been taught anything different and nobody else has either. Yeah. And I, I was well, a very good point. Also, when you say, you know, Judaism's foundational to the West, I also think that you talk about uh, your, there's an implication of people who misunderstand or don't understand that because there is rampant presentism going on in our culture of every ideology and every side where people think history begins with them. They think it begins today and they think all notions of history are viewed through the lens of today. Um, it's informed by narcissism, ignorance, basically educational deficiencies. But I find that interesting because she really, Whoopi was doing the thing and saying, well, they can't possibly be a race. You know, we talk about race. We talk like, talk about black lives matter. Okay, well, I support Black Lives Matter. Why does that have to be mutually exclusive from the fact that European Jewry was exterminated or attempted to be exterminated because they were racialized as not being part of the master race, you know? And I know you don't, but it's it's a fascinating nuance that's so dangerous. Well, there's so there's two problems here that that I do address in the book. Um, so my book is called People Love Dead Jews. Yes, we're getting um, there. We're getting there. But I wanted yeah. to dive in. We're, yeah, we're, sure. No, and, and I mean, look, there's um in my book I talk about basically the the two sort of in, um lines that go through my book are one is that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. Right. And the other is that um, those stories require the erasure of living Jews and actual Jewish culture and civilization. Right. So in order to sort of do those things, you have to sort of like, you know, dump this whole reality um, that might make you feel uncomfortable and question your own beliefs. And also you have to fit Jews into a box that they don't fit into. And that is something that also goes back very far in history. Like, so now we're living in, in the United States today where we sort of tend to see because of our history, often look at sort of, you know, um, things like, um, you know, identity and, and community and all those kinds of things through a lens of race and the legacy of institutional racism. Um, that's sort of the frame that we're used to here in the United States. Um, in other countries, there's different frames. In other periods of history, there's different frames. Jews never fit into these boxes. No. Um, and this is sort of, to me, the sort of fundamental problem, this is something I also talk about in my book, is that there's this sort of problem in the way we think about anti-bigotry education in this country, 
where we think of anti-bigotry education in this country as being something where we tell people or we tell children or whoever we're trying to sort of you know de-bias um we tend to tell them like oh see this group over here that you you know might be prejudiced against you shouldn't hate those people because they're just like you and me they're just like everybody else but of course like what you're then doing is creating this erasure right where you're saying that like you know basically if they're not just like me if they're not just like everybody else then it's okay to be prejudiced against them right and that's sort of the problem that you run into because jews never fit into these boxes right right now we're in a country where we have this racial system or or not system but you know a, an identity system that's based on race there are other places like in canada uh you know let's say maybe it's more based on language let's say in eastern canada like they're all different places and there's always been this attempt by non-jewish societies to fit jews into the this box. This goes back to Napoleon. I mean, it goes back way before that. I can tell you examples from the ancient world. But like Napoleon tried to do this where he's like, let's turn the Jews into just a religion because that's something that I can manage and control. And he convened like a rabbinic court wow. of rabbis from all over the French empire. And he brought them all to Paris and had them sort of like ratify this statement that was going to say that from now on, you know, Judaism's just going to be a religion. It's not going to have any of these other communal or cultural or national impulses. I mean, like he was trying to put Jews into a box that he could manage. And so, like, I mean, the problem is like Jews, Jews don't fit in a box. You know, this idea that, you know, oh, we shouldn't hate somebody who's different from us because they're just like everybody else. I mean, Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everybody else. That's right. And I, so I, again, uh, the book, People Love Dead Jews. The triumph of the book to me, and it is a triumph. Well, first of all, I love essays. As one of my favorite professors at Brown said, an essay is an act of immediacy. And I think each essay you wrote is that in the way it engages uh, not just questions of Jewishness, but questions of Jewishness as it relates to politics, culture, and the like. Um, but the triumph of it to me is I feel like you're the first person I've read, it, it, writing in, a, in the contemporary vernacular, that is, um, of the of politics and culture that explains that you know what society has really done right is strip jews of a particularity right which in essence is is a cornerstone of the identity you know meaning that kind of like you said making making them seem just like you and me but also find this weird sort of way of like um sensationalizing them as you and you illustrate that through those the horrible anti-Semitic attacks, not just Tree of Life, but the Jersey City one and the one in outside San Diego. So what I found interesting is, and I found it very interesting. But is is this in response? I know it's in response to the larger gestalt of of, of what it means to be Jewish and all the existential uh, crises that come with that. But are, would you feel like you're writing a little bit in reaction to some of the things that are going on in the modern political? discourse, especially on the left, by the way, where it seems to be curiously tolerant, progressive, but also anti-Semitic, not the whole left, of course, but the left does have a real problem and it stinks. But I want to get your thoughts. Well, um, so just to the, the question about on the left versus the right and that sort of thing, um, you know, the problem is extremism. Also, like, you know, to say like, oh, there's this curious problem on the left. It's kind of like, well, it would be curious if it weren't over 100 years old. Right. Right. And we can talk more about that. I don't know if we want to go in that direction right now. And by the way, let me add one thing in there. You know, and this happens always during the debate on Israel or the debate on anything. When people say, oh, you know, you know, the left can't be this way because, you know, anti-Semitism is a right wing phenomenon. It's anti-Semitism is a transcendent phenomenon. 
Oh, yes. That has nothing to do with, you know, people make, and again, it's like, well, Hitler was a Nazi, right wing. It's like, guys, you're missing history of, 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 of not just modern cultures, but of ancient civilizations, right? Which has nothing to do, to do with right or left. I'm just pinpointing, you know, again, stripping Jew, Jews and Jewishness of its of its particularity, its essence, its meaning, tying that into a, a, a bone deep reflexiveness against Israel as if it's, you know, an oppressor and I think pseudo-colonial anti-historical analyses. Your, your book of essays, especially when we're going to talk about the Smith, starting with the Smithsonian episode, the Anne Frank episode, right, for the Smithsonian, you know, I think speaks to that, you know? I mean, you even have a chapter on Shylock and the Great Merchant of Venice, which I, yeah. which I thought you had a very interesting take on. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want to do, let's go back. Um, I love the book. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. You have a doctorate in uh, Yiddish and Hebrew studies. Well, it's actually in comparative literature, but my language is in comparative literature that I focus on more Yiddish and Hebrew. Is that a dual doctorate? Or no, not? it's uh, my doctorate. In other words, my doctorate, doctoral degree is in comparative literature. Yes. Within comparative, like when you do a degree in comparative literature, you have to study multiple literature. Oh, I see. And how did you, did you always want to write about this? Have you always thought about this? How did you, what are the origins of Dara's intellectual uh, trajectory? Sure. Well, so I'll start by saying I spent 20 years not writing this book. Okay. I mean, I know you've written five or six novels. Yeah. Too. So I've written, so my previous five books are all novels. Um, they all deal really deeply with uh, themes from Jewish history, tradition, texts, and uh, culture. Um, and so to your question about like, you know, did I always know I wanted to do this? Well, I mean, you know, being a writer is something that, you know, it's not really like a, a career choice. It's more like a chronic illness, right? It's something you have to sort of just build your life around when you realize that you have this problem. Um, you know, and if you're fortunate, you can make a career out of it. Otherwise, you're doing it anyway. Right. Um, yeah. And I sort of just really felt fortunate um, in growing up in the Jewish community that I happened to be born into a tradition and a culture that like where everything was about books. I, I mean, this is a tradition where we literally like dance with books. We kiss books. I mean, it's like it's like a great tradition if you are a writer and a person who cares about books um so that's that, a house of talmudic gusto right yes it's very <laughs> yes i mean it's a very like serious obsession with books but um i was you know studying hebrew and yiddish literature and um and so when oh so to go back to what i was saying before about you know that i spent 20 years not writing this book it was always very important to me in all of my work so whether it was my scholarly work my teaching or my writing of these novels that um, it was always very important to me, and, and all of these enterprises for me are very focused on Jewish culture. It was always really important to me that Jewish culture be defined from the inside. That Jewish identity was not something that was defined by like what the world did to the Jews, right? And I was always pushing back against that. It's idea. a reclamation of, of, mm -hmm. of what belongs to Jews. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it wasn't even a reclamation because I hadn't lost this, right? I mean, this is something, I mean, I grew up, I was a Torah reader from the age of 12. Wow. Um, and yeah. Shabbat every Friday night in the house? Um, every Saturday, I, I mean, I like literally had a job in my family's synagogue reading the Torah for the children's congregation every 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 Saturday. So that was something I, I grew up with. You know, so for me, it's not a reclamation. It's a, you know, something I always had, was always sort of focused on, you know, this tradition of texts and, and sort of creative understanding of this text um, and creative reinterpretation of these texts so and and so much so that I used to go to and and then when I when I did my doctorate and I sort of realized sort of the depth of like um you know Yiddish civilization Yiddish speaking civilization um Hebrew 
literature, um, you know, modern from Israeli literature back down through all the way through biblical, you know, backwards in time through biblical literature. Um, you know, I used to really push back against this idea that Jewish life was going to be defined from the outside so much so that when I would go to speak about my novels in, you know, whatever public events I was doing, I often would ask the audience, how many people here can name three concentration camps? And that's you know, something a lot of readers can do. Just a side note, I was having a conversation once, a debate with somebody about uh, it's semitism you know what I mean? And I said there had been in, in the horrible uh, genre, the disgusting subspecies of Holocaust denial, you know, people who had claimed that Jews were not gassed at Treblinka. Right. And the person said, what's Treblinka? And this was a rather learned person. I mean, I, I, yeah, you know what I mean? It was like, uh, you never heard of, you know, you know, I said there wasn't one concentration camp. Anyway, go ahead. You know, yes. So. Well, so, well, so the thing is like, oh, so maybe, maybe this wouldn't be true anymore. I mean, as I said, I've been doing this for 20 years. Um, you know, um, you know, how many people here can name three concentration camps? A lot of educated readers can do that. I asked those same people, how many people here can name three Yiddish writers? No, that's harder. Well, what's interesting is that. 80% of the people who were murdered in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. It's a famously literary culture. Yep. And I asked these same readers, why do we care so much about how these people died if we really aren't interested in how these people lived? And, you know, because, I mean, that is actually the culture that was destroyed in the Holocaust was Yiddish speaking Jewish civilization in Europe. So, and, and, and which, you know, are there Yiddish speaking communities today? Yes. However, what was really destroyed was this sort of Yiddish speaking civilization as a broad, um, di you know, religiously diverse, um, religious and secular, um, with many different political parties, many different like art artistic movements, many, you know, like theater and arts and literature and press and liter you know, and, and politics and all this sort of, that's what was destroyed. And, you know, one of the things I also noticed is like, you know, that there's often this tendency in those sort of, Again, I, I spoke earlier about Holocaust memorialization being something where we're trying to send this message that like, oh, these people are just like you and me. They're just like everybody else. And it's like, well, except like I said, 80% of those people are Yiddish speakers. A huge percentage of them were religious Jews. You know, and then I'm like, you know, the Nazi project was not just about killing 6 million Jews. It was also about erasing Jewish civilization. Why are we participating in that by also erasing Jewish civilization? Um, when we present this. So that's sort of, you know, so that's something that I, I was sort of always pushing back against. And also because I'm aware of sort of the like amazing qualities of this civilization, because Judaism is a counterculture that runs through the whole history of the West, um, you know, and, and endures through, and not just endures, but does so through creative reinvention. It's constant creative reinvention. And that is sort of what, to me, what's this astonishing sort of story of Jewish civilization. It's not about it being this litany of horror, but it's about this triumph of creative resilience, where you have sort of these many calamities that the community moves through, not moves on from, but moves through, right. and then builds and rebuilds and reinvents after each of these calamities, going back thousands of years. And that to me is sort of the most astonishing story. And that was what, that was the story that I was telling in my novels, which in many different ways, like my novels are contemporary stories, they have historical elements, they're taking place in many different periods of time. So that was sort of like always what I was working on. And I always was avoiding the subject of anti-Semitism. Like, I just did not want that to be what I was writing about. Right. And then something happened in around 2018, where I hit a wall. And that's how this book came about. Is that Tree of Life? Well, it's before that, actually. In, in 2018, I was asked by Smithsonian Magazine, to they they approached me and asked me if I would write a piece for them, um, an essay about Anne Frank. And I had gotten that request and I just felt like this overwhelming sense of dread 
because I thought like, wow, I really, really don't want to write an essay for about Anne Frank. And, you know, I then sort of like, you know, the normal thing to do would be to turn this assignment down. But, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not a normal person. So I'm just sort of like, <laughs> this is, well, right. I mean, well, my thought was like, this is interesting. Right. Why don't I want to do this? Right. And I hadn't really sort of parsed that out for myself. And I thought, this, why don't I want to do this? And then I remembered a news item that I had read about, something I had read about that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam earlier that year. Great, so, great story. I love this story. Go ahead. Yeah. So again, in 2018, um, this is Am the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam, of course, is this, um, it's this former office building where, you know, this teenage diarist Anne Frank and her family and several other people were hiding from the Nazis during World War II. And then, you know, later her diary is discovered. These rooms where she and these other people were hiding is, uh, and the building that they were in is now this like blockbuster museum in Amsterdam. Yeah. He's the they world's most famous Dutch Jew. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, as I put, as I call her in the book, the title of that chapter is uh, "Everyone's Second Favorite Dead Jew." Um, so anyway, so this museum is now this like blockbuster museum. They get you know millions of visitors a year. And in 2018, this news item I had seen was about a young Jewish man who worked at this museum, and the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. Right. That's this little sort of uh, skull cap that religious Jewish men often wear. The museum would not allow him to wear the, his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He then appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board of the museum then deliberated for four months and then relented and let him wear his yarmulke to work. And I had just seen this news story and I thought, you know, four months. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in those for me. Deliberating about what? I mean... Well, so their whole idea was like, oh, our museum is all about neutrality. You know, we want to share, you know, the Jews' humanity. I mean, the humanities of like the nice Jews, right? Like the dead ones, not the living ones doing gross things. Like, I mean, listen, I, 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 I don't want to be presumptuous for the museum's mission statement, but I would argue it is precisely not about neutrality. But okay. I mean, anyway. there's so many problems with this. And, right. And so, yeah. But like what I thought was hilarious was I see this news story and I just thought, you know, four months is a really long time. Yeah. The Anne Frank Museum to wonder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. Oh, Brutal. Well, by the way, everyone should know this in the book. I I, I love uh, that. Well, I what, what I also I love the book, but I love that each piece, especially this piece, um, was so biting in its in its condemnation, so bracingly sarcastic. You know, well, it is because you know you can't make this stuff up. You can't write it, but you did. You did write it because you had to show the world the preposterousness. You know what I mean? Of I mean, even as if, and I and I'm not completely familiar with what um, you know Dutch law is, but I, you know, certainly in America, you know, we have a First Amendment. I mean, the idea that you couldn't wear a yarmulke, what's that have to do with anything anyway? I mean, do you know what I mean? Well, but then I realized like what was really going on here because then I I remembered this news story and I just thought like you know did I dream this because like you know and then I went back and looked it up online and when I looked it up I discovered something equally ridiculous that happened at the same museum in 2017 the previous year where visitors had noticed something weird about the audio guides big international museum they've got maybe 10 or 15 languages. And then on that display where they have the, you know, there's that display for the audio guy where it says English and there's a little British flag and it says Francais and there's a little French flag. Right. Until you get to Hebrew, no flag. Wow. No flag. And then I was like, you know, these are PR mishaps, but they are not mistakes. No. Well, I think, you know, I lived in London for a bit and I'm just going to, I'm speculating a little bit, uh, but you know, the Europe, Europe's relationship to the idea of, 
an Israeli home, a Jewish homeland is very, I still think very tortured. Of course, that's where the Jews were murdered. I mean, I find, I found the idea of Israel trying to be like, well, you know, that, that was, that's no, you know, it, yes, we're not anti-Semitic, but I mean, Israel's a mess. I mean, what's going on over there is, you know what I mean? So I think there is a diminution of, I do, as this is my speculation that they, you know, how hard is it to put an Israeli flag there? So Adam, I'm going to call you on this. You're being too nice. Okay. All right. You're being too nice because as I put it in, so I did write this piece for Smithsonian and I open with these situation in the Anne Frank Museum. This piece is now the first chapter in the book. And as I put it in my, the very first line of that piece, People love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. Not so much. Um, and you know, I'm going to call. And on the the point with the Israeli flag, I want to point out so that you know Anne Frank's sister, Margot, who spoiler alert was also murdered in the Holocaust, was an ardent Zionist. Yep. Who's was involved in Dutch Zionist youth organizations, was studying Hebrew, was preparing to emigrate to what was then Palestine to be a midwife in the Galilee. That was her dream. And like, you don't care about her. Right. So, I mean, that's sort of like, like, you know, she's also dead. So, I mean, this is sort of what's interesting is that, you know, and then when you said like, oh, what was their motivation of this? Like, it really is like, we want to teach about the Jews humanity, like the nice Jews, meaning the dead ones, mm -hmm. right? Not the ones doing gross things like living in Israel as more than half of the world's Jews do or practicing Judaism. And this is part of what, um, you know, when we were speaking earlier, you were talking about like this right wing versus left wing idea of, yeah. you know, um, of antisemitism. I actually have a little bit of a different distinction, which I make in my book, which I describe it, um, two forms of antisemitism and I, and they don't necessarily track to right wing and left wing, but right. there's some overlap. Um, I, tr I, I identify these two types of antisemitism by the Jewish holidays that celebrate triumphs over them specifically Purim and Hanukkah. So Purim anti-Semitism, and this is just my formulation. This is sure, sure, sure. Of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Purim is the, you know, uh, Purim anti-Semitism based on the holiday of Purim, which is about the biblical book of Esther. It's about this, you know, genocidal maniac who decrees, you know, he's basically going to, you know, big bad guy comes and wants to kill all the Jews, right. right? Nothing ambiguous here, super clear, right? Like there's no, there's nowhere to go with this. It's really obvious. Okay. That's the Purim form of anti-Semitism. But then there's what I call the Hanukkah form of anti-Semitism based on the Hanukkah story. Hanukkah story is about this um, Hellenized regime that takes over ancient Judea. And at first, you know, there and there's no point in that story where this regime once says they're going to kill all the Jews. Doesn't come up. But their goal is still to destroy Jewish civilization. But they do this at first, basically not by killing people, but by destroying, by editing how people are allowed to be Jewish. And so the way it it's starts- more insidious, the kind of Hanukkah anti-Semitism, right? Yes. Well, it's more, it's, it's about that. It's not, it's like, you know, we don't hate Jews. We just hate X, Y, Z things that we have decided are not cool. Right? And so the most obvious example of this is- um, they, uh, the Jews of Judea at this time are like, okay, we can be a good vassal state. And they build a, a gymnasium in Jerusalem. Um, you know, ancient Greek athletics are like a huge, it's not like, you know, just like the NBA or something. This, it was like part of the real ancient religion. I mean, you know, um, it was a huge, it was like the way to be a person who matters in this culture was to be involved in these athletics. If you've ever been to an art museum, you know that Greek athletics were played in the nude. Um, these, uh, I have noticed that actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so these Jews in Judea, then rec they recruited teenage Jewish boys to be athletes in these Greek games. These teenage Jewish boys then had their circumcisions reversed Oof. so they could participate in these Greek games 
I don't even want to think about how that was even possible. Uh, I, it's, I, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to. I don't even want to think about it. But what's interesting about this is that that is at an early enough stage in this story, in this history, that no one is making them do that, right? No one is saying you have to do this. Right. It's, but about five years later, the regime outlaws circumcision. Right. Five years later, the regime outlaws circumcision. They outlaw keeping kosher. They outlaw studying Torah. They right. outlaw you know, various Jewish religious practices. But the, again, oh, we're not, you know, we don't hate Jews. We just like, this is gross. Well, I mean, I, I and I wanted to ask about, and we're going to, I mean, we're going to just move it on into the subject of Israel, which is on my list to talk to you about. And sure. We're, we're going to circle back to things. But um, it, I completely believe, I don't completely believe, let, let, let me, I'm, I don't want to be nice. I know for a fact that after the last Israel Hamas episode where social justice warriors decide Palestine, it's all Palestine and everything else is shit in their word that attacks of people on streets of Beverly Hills who were Jewish in restaurants is no accident. Okay. It's not correlation. It's causation. Okay. And anybody who thinks differently isn't paying attention or is just willfully naive or anti-Semitic or both or all things. And I, to your point of your example, I think what scares me so much is, right, of course, Haman, Perm King Haman wants to murder the Jews. Of course, you know, you, you see uh, Richard Spencer or a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi group. Yeah, they want to murder, they don't want Jews. We know that. That's what they avow. It, it, we know where they stand. They're not hiding it. They're marching on bridges in Orlando with swastika armbands, okay? But what we also have is people who are theoretically enlightened liberals, Enlightened progressive, not necessarily could be enlightened conservatives who, you know, decide to trouble the idea, right? Just, just slightly. I'm, I'm using their framing, you know, of the idea of a Jewish homeland because, uh, you know, you're turning out to be oppressors. You're turning out to be doing things that you weren't supposed to do. No, I'm saying this is all the rhetoric they use, which is tantamount to uh, a full-on anti-Semitic screed. But it's couched in politically correct terms. But to your point, over the five years, look at where we are now. We talk about Israel from five years ago. There's some his there's history to this. So, okay. you know, as I just gave in that example of the Hanukkah story. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, first of all, this this requires this Hanukkah form of anti-Semitism. It requires Jews to participate in their own humiliation. They are where right? liberal and, Jews are. In yeah, Israel. so that's what you're sort of required to participate in this, and it's like it's it's a weaponized shame. So what's interesting to me about the the sort of the anti-Israel stuff is that this is also something I write about in the book. Yeah. Um, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about um, this uh, Soviet Yiddish actor uh -huh. who was part of this like the destruction of the Soviet Jewish intelligentsia under yeah. Stalin. And what I also trace back to is that. Um, the early years of the Bolshevik regime. So in the 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 civil war, the Russian mm -hmm. civil war, and and the years sort of immediately following the 1917 Bolshevik revolution. Between like 17 and 22. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but then there's like, you know, there's a whole massive yeah, civil yeah, yeah. war. During which, by the way- um, Before Lenin officially takes over. Yeah, the, no, 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 this is Lenin. This is like, um, you know, 1918, the, the civil war is like 1918 to 1921 or 22. But, what's but the thing about, I mean, by the way, 100,000 Jews massacred in Ukraine during that period. Nobody even remembers that. Like, oh, whatever, Holocaust, unprecedented moment in history where people are being shot into mass graves, except that you already shot 100,000 people into mass graves in Ukraine in the early 1920s. But okay, let's pretend that never happened. Okay, leaving that overside. Um, the Bolsheviks um, 
their goal in part of their in in um waging war and consolidating their power in the okay. former Russian Empire is to get the Jewish masses on their side. Okay. So one of their one and one of the ways they do this is they create what's called the Yevsexia, which are the Jewish sections of the Communist Party, whose goal is to spread Bolshevik propaganda among Yiddish, you know, the masses, so to speak, Yiddish-speaking Jews in the former Russian Empire. There, one and one of their talking points in this sort of, you know, in this propaganda spreading among the Jews of the former Russian Empire is we are not anti-Semitic. We are just, wait for it, anti-Zionist. By the way, this is like, you know, 25 years before the creation of the state of Israel or more. Um, we're just anti-Zionist. Of course, what that means. Oh, and by the way, we're also anti-religious because we're communist. We're um, godless, so I would say. We're totally cool with Jews, but you can't practice Judaism. You can't use Hebrew. So what this meant was that anybody using Hebrew was, you know, immediate enemy of the state. They expelled all the... Um, Chaim Nachman Bialik, the, uh, the Hebrew poet, um, Habima Theater managed to escape to what was then Palestine at this time. Um, they also, I mean, in the process, I mean, they shut down all the rabbinical schools, they shut down every yeshiva, they shut down all the synagogues, they shut down all the um, the communal uh, Jewish communal organizations, also any Zionist activity, which is something that ranged from everything from political parties to sports clubs, all shut down. They also, I mean, in, in the process of not being anti-Semitic and merely being anti-Zionist, they managed to persecute, imprison, torture, and murder thousands of Jews. But Dara, Dara, let me, let me, let me say, you know, I appreciate where you're coming from, but come on. I mean, they're for the proletariat. They're communists. How could they, they're not anti-Semitic. I know I'm, I'm, I'm riffing on, we hear that in leftist rhetoric now, you know, but well, what really I'm trying to say is, is really that this is sort of this non-Jewish society that's editing, that's editing and imposing its standards of how we're you're we they're like we love jews as long as you follow our these rules about how you're allowed to be jewish and that's something that that's the hanukkah anti-semitism which requires jews to erase and edit themselves mm -hmm. um so that's what we saw like that is the same process of you know your jews are great but you have to reverse your circumcision in order to play in these greek games right i mean that's the same kind of dynamic so this was like we you know we're not anti-semitic we're just anti-zionist you're awesome if you're jewish as long as you like dump this thing that by the way happens to be like central to yes and to the point of what you do in your book because time of people you know uh, love dead Jews and, you know, living Jews is something we, we grapple with. We minimize, we an erase, like it requires an erasure. It requires an erasure. And I always say yeah. like, you know, when you talk about, which is obviously a big subject now, and, and I'm very committed, we're very committed here. I've been committed long fight for democracy, fight like hell. Right. For one of the reasons is, is that, and this is my belief, and I think you're going to appreciate it, is that any authoritarian regime, right. Is inherently anti-Semitic. Now, what ends up happening, though, these debates, right, and this is what your book does so well, is people go, oh, well, you know, no, no, you know, you're comparing this to the Holocaust or Hitler. I said, everything isn't that. Anti-Semitism, you don't downplay or ignore or act naive or, I guess, indulge, however you want to look at it, anti-Semitism, just because it's not the Holocaust. I mean, you know what I mean? This is how, these are the building blocks. That point is like, I, I always find it like, well, you know, I said, yes, I said, well, that person, I said, just because they're putting Uyghurs in concentration camps doesn't mean there's any love for Jew. I mean, there's this weird disconnect. I think your book is speaking to, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, cause the problem is, I mean, there's a few things first is that, um, 
you know, there's this idea. So, and this was an idea that was that was really promoted, you know, within and by the Jewish community in the United States for the for you know in the, about 30 years ago. Right. You know, about 30 years ago, which is when you started having like things like the Holocaust Museum in Washington opening. You had sort of you know school curricula about the Holocaust. You know, one of the pr ideas behind that was, was the reason that the Jewish community at that time was so behind that was because of this idea that like Holocaust education would like help inoculate people, the public against anti-Semitism, right? right? Because that was the one of the premises there, right? Was that like people would go to these museums or they'd learn about this in school, they'd see where the what the world had done to the Jews, they'd see where hatred could lead and they would then stop hating Jews. I mean, you know, it wasn't a ridiculous idea. I was actually, and I love the way you talk about it. I was there the summer that it opened, I was entering on Capitol Hill. And of course it's a beautiful museum. And I, to your point about the museum, the elevators are a simulacra of cow cars, right? So you get in that, which was this big foreboding, you know, doomsday thing. But I will tell you at 20 years old, thinking, ah, this is kind of performative politics. Me meaning, meaning to your point is, how does this necessarily do anything other than say, this was bad, anti-Semitism was bad, now go home and go out to dinner. I mean, what, what did the, right? There's a few problems. One, I mean, yeah. I think that there is the, like the goal. I think that one. Not that we shouldn't have a Holocaust museum. I just. Oh, yeah, no, and I think yeah. I'm, I'm being really clear. Like, I'm not saying that like we shouldn't have Holocaust education. One thing I do think Holocaust education does do well, relatively so, is make people aware of the fragility of democracy. I agree with you. That's something that is important, and sort of the you know the the ease with which you can have a tyrannical regime take over that kind of thing. That I think is very valuable. What it's not very good at is inoculating people against anti-Semitism. Right. Because um, what happens is, you know, uh, you know, when you go to these you, these museums, it's sort of like, you know, oh, you're supposed to learn about the Holocaust so you don't repeat it. I mean, the problem is, as I mentioned earlier, people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves. Now, what that means is the ho Holocaust education is one of those stories because right. you go to a Holocaust museum, hopefully you feel sad about what happened but you feel great about yourself because you're like i would never do this right you're like yeah go you you probably wouldn't mass murder six million people like pat yourself on the back but like you still might be an inveterate jew hater though that's a low <laughs> bar to clear I know. And, we now, and we now have this thing where we like you know every time any random public figure says something vaguely anti-semitic like that somebody hauls them to a holocaust museum and then they like you know come out and they're like nazis are bad and it's like the problem is it's not that hard to say that Nazis are bad. It's harder, for example, when Elon Omar has made repeated anti-Semitic uh, comments, repeated, so does Rashida Tlaib, to say they're anti-Semitic because you're not allowed to attack a woman of color I, I, who, are, who is Muslim because they could never, ever, A, it's Islamophobic, and B, they can never be anti-Semitic. Talk about erasure. Well, that's the debate. That's what we were that's told. The, I mean, the real erasure, though, is that there's um, there's a lot of things to unpack here. But, um, I mean, one thing is that the problem with that sort of process is that, like, that doesn't require those people to engage with living Jews in any way. It doesn't require them to engage with Jewish culture. And it doesn't allow the trope of Nazis as supervillains, which they were, because that's the bar they use. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, the other problem is that, like, and as I put it in the book, I'm like, the bar is kind of high if, like, you know, the it's like, you know, if, if anti-Semitism consists of murdering 6 million Jews, what that means is that anything short of that is kind of no big deal. And, and in the book, I have a section where I'm like, here's a bunch of things that aren't the Holocaust. And I list right. everything from, like, from like trolling Jews on social media to expelling Jews from entire countries and seizing all their assets, which of course happened in like a dozen countries in the Islamic world, um, you know, in the 20th century. 
you know, all of those things, they were all are great compared to the Holocaust. Well, I mean, you know, that's a ridiculous standard. So this is sort of, you know, this is sort of the problem. So I think that, you know, and part of that problem is that, like I said, people want to tell stories that make them feel good about themselves. And that requires this erasure of actual living Jews. And as much as we talk about the sort of boulderization of, of the Holocaust memory, it's better than what you see in a lot. You know, I mean, at least the Holocaust is remembered because, like I said, you know, the Petlyura pogroms in Ukraine in the 1920s, 100,000 Jews massacred. Did you even know that happened? You're probably an educated person. You probably didn't know that happened. You know, or like, you know, the destruction of the Iraqi Jewish community. I mean, this was like a, uh, you know, a community that predated Islam um, that was, you know, thousands of years old. That was, you know, ho- you know, hundreds of thousands of people. They're, you know, all stripped of their citizenship. They're all their assets are seized. Um, like, how about the Jewish community of Libya? You know, Tripoli in 1940 was 25% Jewish. Yeah, I did know that, yeah. I mean, that's like more than New York. Tripoli yeah. in, it was 19, in 1940 was 25% Jewish. How many Jews are in Libya today? Not even just Libya, the whole country. How many, uh, not just, I'm sorry, not just Tripoli, the whole country. How many Jews live in Libya today? I have no idea. Zero. And in fact, there was one Jewish man who came back um, after Gaddafi was ousted, um, who came back to basically just try to remove trash from the ruins of the uh, the largest synagogue in Tripoli. He was hounded out of the country by an anti-Semitic mob that wanted his head waving signs that said no Jews in Libya because obviously one was too many. So like this is something like, you know, this one doesn't come up. I mean, don't even get me started about like Soviet Jews. So, you know, the, the Venezuelan Jewish community. I mean, this is like, you know, and, and also, I mean, in my book, I also talk about American anti-Semitism. Oh, yeah. The history of American anti-Semitism and how American Jews have buried that history. It speaks to the... I hate to use this word resilience, the enduring resilience, right, of, of anti-Semitism, right? In America, I mean, in the world, but in America specifically, that a social justice left, and I'm not picking, I'm again, I'm not on the right, but that a social justice left could actually be an accommodationist ideology anti-Semitism that speaks to the pervasive power of the world of hatred, in my opinion. Well, I mean, it tells you about, I mean, I think that- the Don't you think that's interesting? You know what I mean? That this is, be, it's kind con- you need, in other words, your, your passport in the world of progressive left politics is to be anti-Israel. That's because there's this, you know, when I say people love dead Jews, basically Jews are only acceptable to a non-Jewish society if they are powerless. And that can mean either dead or politically impotent. Otherwise, Jews are not acceptable. So that's that's sort of, and those are the parameters around which these non-Jewish societies are organized. Um, so that's why that's acceptable. And especially, you know, the reason you see it more on the left is because this is a, a, a political ideology that's premised on power, right? That sees everything through a lens of power. And so that's why there, and there's this so deep, this unexamined idea because anti-Semitism is not, is one way that it differs from other prejudices. And I mean, I want to say it differs you know, I'm probably gonna be wrong about this. I'm sure there's some element of this in some other group prejudice against some other group. But one way it differs from other prejudices is that it isn't like just, oh, Jews are inferior to me. It's a conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. Conspiracy theories are all about power. And the whole idea of a conspiracy theory is not these people are inferior to me. It's these people have these superpowers and are controlling things behind the scenes. And you absolutely see that conversation happening when you, um, when you look at history of anti-Semitism in the United States, including today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted you to talk about actually speaking of anti-Semitism in America, obviously the tree of life being so cataclysmic, but obviously the one in, in Poway, California, is that what it was? Is that what it's called? And, uh, and in Jersey City. I mean, 
obviously we know anti-Semitism is pervasive. We know it's on the rise. Does it seem like there's a, I know we know the number of attacks are up, but does it seem like that has increased even more than we know in the last five years? I'm not just going by statistics here. I mean, does it seem, is it no accident those that these attacks all happen so close together and then happened, you know, in one in Pittsburgh, one in Jersey City, one in California, you know, that synagogues are seem more under assault. Not that they haven't been, but is it just that we're, it's amplified now? A few things going on, right? Um, you know, and, and it is like, um, the thing that I think, what, what I write about at the end of the book is the attacks on the Hasidic community that happened just before the pandemic, there have unfortunately been many other attacks since then that, you know, I didn't write about in the book because I was handing it in. Um, but, you know, I was, I mean, unfortunately, I'm up to date. I mean, I was, you know, we just had this uh, hostage taking in a Texas synagogue, um, you know, so you can, I mean, that one, those people didn't die. So it's a win. Yay. Right. Um, but what I think was sort of what was really striking to me about the attacks on the Hasidic community is that when you, I read the, I read all the news articles about those attacks, I couldn't find a news article that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the article. Yes, you write about that in Jersey City. It was sort of like, well, they, you know, they, there was pushback about them. And so, so they, they, did they have it coming? Was that the implication? That's, well, yes. Well, so so that, that I mean, yes, that was the message. Not yes, that's true, by the way. Every article was like, oh, these people are gentrifying a minority neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, well, number one, like these are highly visible members of the top hate crime target, according to the FBI. Right, they're not like white hipsters, uh, you know. And number two, is there like, is there this murderous rage against gentrification where people are like walking into, you know, blue bottle coffee with automatic weapons? Because I haven't seen that happening. Why are we pretending that this is about gentrification? And then it's very similar. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the other attacks. Um, I was one of the attacks I read about in the book is an attack um in Muncie, New York, which is a upstate uh New York community. It's a large Hasidic community. This was a, a really horrific one where somebody right before the pandemic. Somebody walked into a crowded Hanukkah party with a four foot machete and just started slashing people. And in that attack, I mean, I read all the news articles about that attack and they're like, well, you know, just for context, there was a zoning battle between the Hasidic and non-Hasidic residents of this town. And I'm like, you know, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? <laughs> you know something? I had a fight with my neighbor, uh, Darren. I, ha I hacked her up. I hacked her up. I apologize. I should have done right. but, but, but no, but what I was going to say is these articles are sending a signal to the public, the signal they're sending is these people deserve it. That is the signal they're sending. This is an acceptable, this is completely acceptable way to treat this community. And that is absolutely the signal they're sending. And what I have to tell you, um, Adam, is that, you know, I wrote this book as an intellectual exercise. I really wrote this book about, not about things that happened in my life, but it was like experiences I had had that I was sort of just processing through, uh, experience I had had like as a researcher, as a writer, as a traveler, things I had encountered in my scholarship. It really wasn't for me this like personal story. But since I published this book, I've gotten hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of messages. I get messages from all kinds of readers, but many, many hundreds of messages from Jewish readers. All They all say exactly the same thing. They say, and these are old people, young people, people from rural areas, cities um, in the United States, around the world, religious, secular, every type of person um, within the Jewish, you know, a, a lot of Jewish readers. And they're all saying exactly the same thing. I have, what they say is, I have felt uncomfortable my whole life and I've never understood why. This book articulated this for me, thank you. And then they say, I never told anyone this, but. And then they tell me some horrible story of some experience of their own that they've had with anti-Semitism in their own life. 
And then they say, thank you for writing this book. I was not prepared for this. I feel like, you know, when you, and then this is in response to your question about like the last five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The things these people are telling me, like these are not, I mean, I haven't experienced these things, but these people have. And it's like just the variety of humiliations. And these are not like deadly attacks. That's the thing. Like this is like the stuff that doesn't end up being a news story because it didn't involve a guy with a gun. Right. These are things like, I mean, I'm shocked by like, you know, I mean, these are things like, you know, I'm an actor. I spent three years going to auditions. At every audition, the director told me I look too Jewish for this part, and now I'm a voice actor. These are people who write me, they said, you know, I am an influencer. I have, you know, I sell makeup brands online, um, you know, and I, you know, during the last Gaza War, I posted something that said, you know, I you know, want to say, you know, there should be peace, and I support, you know, sit, you know, people in Israel who are running to bomb shelters, and I lost three of my brands. And now I know I can never do that again because it will destroy my livelihood. Um, I have people, somebody who told me, there was a student in Germany who told me like, oh, I went to university and I was, a, you know, my classmates and my professors had never met a Jew before. They were all excited to meet me. They had me be the speaker at their Kristallnacht memorial. Right. And then the final exam was on a Saturday and I'm an observant Jew. It's the Sabbath. I, I told the professor, I can't take the exam on this day. I'm going to need to have another accommodation. And the professor failed me. I cannot tell you, Adam, how many people have written to me. Did you know that people are still getting pennies thrown at them in 21st century America? In 21st century America, I mean, this is like- I've been and we're, we're almost done, but I wanted to talk to you about this. I'm glad that you brought this up. These letters don't surprise me, but I'll give you my experience. You know, raising in, in, in a secular Jewish household where grandparents always said Jews are never safe, always be on alert, even though America has been good to them comparatively. I had two great grandmothers, one of whom fled the Cossacks. Actually, she was born in 1898 or whatever. So she left in 1907, whatever it was. So long, long dead now. And she used to talk about the precariousness of being Jewish, but what America meant. And I grew up, uh, I was born in 1974, grew up in Miami Beach. And then I lived in New York and Providence and LA. And for the most part, a very, very, I would say, a mix of uh, more, I would say, well, a very diverse community, but it's certainly waspy and Jewish commingled at a private school. And I, your book is very powerful for a lot of reasons, but the last five years, and I feel like your book is, again, immediacy. The essays, essays are so immediate. That's what I love about them. And it, you know, it's read me now. It's about this here now. I feel like some of my illusions have been punctured. You know, I don't mean I wasn't naive to it, but it, it, it seems now that I never thought we'd be talking about this. Do you know what I mean? It's a, um, uh, an ethereal, almost spiritual feeling. It's this weird wave that's come over me now that I'm actually thinking about that. Now, again, I'm not a religious Jew. I don't, I'm not Hasidic. I don't wear yarmulke, you know, but you wonder like, would there be environments I'd go into or have gone into where I've left and people have said something anti-Semitic? I, I don't know. You know, and I never used to think about that, not because I was blind, but because America was supposed to be the exception. Yes. Well, so this is this is the mythology that that many American Jews are raised on. Certainly. Um, so I'm I'm a couple years younger than you, but we're the same generation. Um, so yeah, people our age and older, like this was never part of our lives for the most part. And I feel like what what's disturbing to me is it's it is part of my children's lives, and that's that's disturbing to me. Um, but what I will tell you is that also like I mean we have this idea in this country that like 
you know, like, I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's, um, I think I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's a Martin Luther King quote where it's like, oh, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. We have actually, what's funny is it's actually by Herodotus. Oh, is it? Okay. Well, so, um, you know, so, you know, this idea that his, there's this linear, pro linear progress in history, like, I don't see evidence of that in Jewish history. Um, you know, lots of times people say to me, like, oh, how can you say that there's any issue of anti-Semitism when we live in a country where there's Supreme Court justices are Jewish and, you know, there's, um, you know, and senators and whatever. And I was like, you know, and, and, and cultural leaders, I was like, everything you just told me was also true in 12th century Egypt. And everything you just told me was also true in 10th century Spain. And everything you just said was also true in 6th century Babylonia. So it's like, you know, these are cyclical things. Um, but I will tell you something that is encouraging to me, though. So since I published this book, I did have received this outpouring of these, like, you know, really upsetting mail from Jewish readers. What I also have received is this enormous outpouring of responses from non-Jewish readers and who really are looking to be good allies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just don't know how. I've had people write to me. I've had someone recently just sent me this like 10 page letter where it was like, I'm a recovering anti-Semite. Wow. You know, thank you for writing this book. I felt like this was this mind barnacle that I knew I had to get rid of and I didn't know how. I've, I mean, I can tell you, like, I've also, I've done these kind of interviews, like what I'm doing with you, Adam, I've spoken on, you know, sort of, so I've spoken to sort of general audiences like yours, right. um, but I've also spoken to like specifically in, you know, minority communities, um, you know, podcasts and that kind of thing that are geared toward particular minority communities. A lot of those readers will say to me like, wow, what you're writing about is so familiar. Mm. Right. Like this just feels like we're on the same page here. Let's work together. Um, I've also I mean, I've been on Christian TV. Well, I was just going to say that one of the you know, and again, we're we're um, we probably should have a separate podcast on this. The curious thing uh, I use curious for a reason of, you know, the, the Christian Zionism, but what it means biblically, but what but how it manifests itself in terms of politics and policy. You know, one of my closest friends is uh, Christian Zionist. I mean, I mean, religious, and she will tell you the Jews are blessed, and nothing will ever happen in Israel, and you'll always be protected. I mean, in her mind, it's 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 so philo-Semitic. I mean, you know, just the entire that whole kind of conservative Christian pro-Israel. I mean, my God, I follow them on Twitter. I mean, in many cases, they're I mean more robust and full-throated than many Jews I know now. They, that may be because Jesus is coming back to Megiddo, and if we don't all convert, we'll be killed. But that's their version of it. My version of it is we need, but we need the support. You know, if Israel needs the help, so guess what? It's it's a, a, a you know a place of three religions. Well, I, I guess what I want to say though is that you know, so there there are a lot of people of goodwill in this country who really actually want to be good allies. And really just don't know how and just kind of don't know anything. I mean, it's just the level of ignorance is really deep. Um, and, you know, like what I, we started this conversation with, like, you know, Whoopi Goldberg's comments, which, you know, these are, these are not people who necessarily, like, they're not malevolent or anything. Like, they just don't. I, I think, though, that this is a moment where we do have the power to flip this narrative. That's wonderful. And what I mean by that is, you know, you've seen how that's happened for other minority groups who have been able to do this. And mm -hmm. I actually think that. Going back to what I talked about at the beginning of, of our conversation about that high school history textbook, mm -hmm. what if that high school history textbook actually did include the content of Jewish civilization? And that was what people learned in school. 
Think about how that would change everything about uh, everything about the way people would approach living Jews today. And I will tell. I'm gonna I'm gonna end us with this um, a little more of an optimistic story. I know, like, I'm not much of an optimist in this book. No, no, no. I, I was I was actually gonna say, and this is good. Give us something to be hopeful for. Let's not be Pollyannas, but let's hopefully have an antidote to some of the. Well, so what I want to suggest is that there's a lot that non-Jews can learn from the creative resilience of Jewish civilization. And that this is an enormous gift that we shouldn't keep to ourselves. Um, and I say we shouldn't keep to ourselves, of course, I'm aware of a lot of the, the riches of this civilization. Many Jews who grew up, um, you know, very assimilated don't know it either. Um, but, you know, this there's, but what I want to suggest is that non-Jews who even have the most passing um, awareness of this, the riches of this culture, see immediately what it could give to them. Um, so, I mean, basic things like the idea of Shabbat. How much conversations do we have, Shabbat, the Sabbath, right? How many conversations do we have in public uh, in, in public discourse about how, oh, we need to have time to unplug, you know, you need to have time to step back from the modern, you know, from, from being tied to your phone. Jews have been doing that for thousands of years, right? <laughs> right. And that's a social justice thing. The, the Sabbath is a social justice thing because in, in the ancient world, leisure was only for wealthy people. And the Sabbath is a commandment that says everybody has to rest. Your servants have to rest. Your animals have to rest, right? That leisure is a human, you know, a human animal right too, right? That leisure is a right, right? That everyone has. That is a social justice uh, initiative. So another thing that I'm going to give you the little hopeful story is um, I mentioned earlier that I'm an academic. About five years ago, I was at an academic conference for uh, Hebrew scholars. Okay. It was at uh, uh, University of Washington in Seattle. And at this conference, everybody at this conference was basically a Jewish academic who teaches Hebrew. Okay. Except, except three people who sat in the back of all the, all the sessions of this conference taking careful notes. These three people were from the Wampanoag Nation. Oh, wow. This is, um, in, these are uh, Native Americans who are from Eastern Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. That we that were famously murdered. Yes, the people whose ancestors first encountered the pilgrims, right? Well, so we're at this Hebrew conference because their goal was to revive Wampanoag language. Hasn't been spoken, hadn't been spoken for 250 years. And they were at this Hebrew conference because they said to us, we want to know how you did it. Because Hebrew is the only language in the history of the world that has ever been revived from a dead language to now the spoken language of the native spoken language of like 7 million people. And they're like, if you could do it, we could too. We want to know how you did it. Tell us. Amazing. Well, here's the language that's alive, right? In a, in a, in this haunted present, as you call it, Adara, I want to thank you uh, for this really invigorating conversation. Dara Horn wrote, uh, has a, has written many books, but her latest is people love dead Jews and uh, you need to read it. Everybody should read it. Um, and, and as uh, Dara, so um, eloquently just explain Jewish culture is everybody's culture. It belongs to us. It's the cradle of civilization and we should all find a place, a comfortable little uh, nook, right? Within that cradle. Uh, Dara, you're welcome back here uh, anytime. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. 